0: They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And When she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the, Lord of the, pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, teach us to pray like Hannah prays. Teach us to look with confidence at your work in our lives and in the world. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear how even your spirit is at work in and among us today. We pray all of this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. You ever think about a soundtrack for your life? You know, in a movie, you know, something happens, and there's always music that plays underneath what's happening on the screen. Three weeks ago, we left our son Drew in Ohio to begin his freshman year at Kent State University, and as I watched my son drive away, the soundtrack started playing. Sunrise, sunset. Is this the little girl I carried? Is this the little boy at play? I don't remember growing older. When did they? Oh, man, that was a hard day. (laughs) Lots of tears. Lots of hard, kind of heavy-duty sobbing. Talk to a mom after first service who's like, I did the happy dance. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. All that to say, I can't imagine doing what Hannah does here. Samuel is between three and five years old. Three to five years old. And you're leaving him with Eli, who, okay, yeah, he's a priest, but he's an old man. And his two sons, we're going to see in a couple of weeks, they are wicked dudes. And their reputation is known. And Hannah walks away. But instead of raising her voice in lament, like I would have, Hannah turns and prays. There's an old saying in church history that goes like this. Lex Orandi, Lex Credenda. What that means is the law of what is prayed is the law of what is believed. And the idea here is if you really want to know what someone believes, listen to them pray. And sometimes, those whose prayers are the deepest, those who show the greatest acquaintance with God, those that reveal the depth of trust and faith, those prayers come from people like Hannah, who have suffered, who have lost, who have sacrificed. I want us today to sit at the feet of Hannah, and I want her to teach us how to pray. I want her to teach us how to make sure that what we believe is also reflected in what we say. There are two big lessons that Hannah teaches us, I think, in this passage. And the first lesson is that your prayers need to be theologically rich. You need to grow in your understanding and application of theology if you're going to pray like Hannah prays. Look at her prayer with me. She begins in chapter 2, verse 2, by describing who God is. And I wonder how many of us, when we turn and pray, do we use this kind of language? Do we say these kinds of words? Or do we, when we pray, do we just immediately get to our need, what we're asking God? Or do we actually begin by expressing and reminding ourselves of the God to whom we turn? In verse 2, she says, God is holy. Many of you probably are familiar with R.C. Sproul's popular book, The, The Holiness of God. And Sproul makes a really interesting point in that book. He says, of all of God's attributes that we read about in the Bible, his holiness is the only attribute that is raised to the third power. And what Sproul means by that is God is not just holy. He is not just holy, holy But instead, pointing to Isaiah, he reminds us that God is holy, holy, holy. Holiness is the moral superiority that allows God to be the standard against which we measure all right and wrong. I'll tell you, when I get off in my life, it's because normally a different standard is now in front of God. I'm measuring my life against my own good ideas, what I think is acceptable, what I think is reasonable. Or I'm measuring my life against somebody else. And of course, I'm going to choose the person that doesn't look so good so that I look better. God is holy. And because he is holy, he is the only standard against which we can measure what is right and wrong in the world and in our own lives, too. How often do we shake our fist at God, saying, I can't believe that you would allow this to happen to me. And yet what we're doing there is we're establishing a different kind of standard, aren't we? God is holy. She continues on in verse 2, this holy God is also a rock. Now. That kind of language is is very common in the Bible, to speak of God as an an unmovable object, a, a place of strength and security and power. But I also want you to remember that Hannah, whose mind has been formed theologically, would have also known the stories of God providing for his people Israel during the Exodus, And how did God provide for his people Israel during the Exodus? Yes, we had manna from heaven and quail come down, but there was also water from a rock. A rock that miraculously followed Israel for 40 years, always ensuring that they had fresh water. God is not just a place of strength and power for Hannah. He's also a place of provision place where his promises are certainly to come true because he cares for her verse 3 he is the god who knows of course the fancy word for this is he is omniscient he is all-knowing the problem is that we sometimes act as if we know better than god and hannah turns and talks to you and i who kind of want to talk back to god she says Talk no more so very proudly. I I love that phrase. Talk no more so very proudly. Be quiet. Shut your face. Make sure that you are not talking back to God, but that you are listening and watching. Because as she goes on, God himself will weigh the actions. We want to be in a place to tell God what to do, and yet Hannah knows, and this is how she begins her prayer, that God is holy, God is her rock, and God is the one who knows. Hannah keeps going in this prayer and moves from addressing who God is to talking about what God does. Starting at verse 4, she has this long list of reversals. The weak become strong. The hungry are full. The barren woman has seven children. The reason that she uses that particular word, that particular number seven, isn't because she herself will have seven children. She ends up having six total children, including Samuel. But because seven is the number of perfection. Seven is the number of completeness, the fullness. They're talking about the fact that someone who is barren now is filled up. The poor become powerful. She goes on and on in these verses talking about how God is at work to upset what we expect, to turn over what we anticipate, to make new in a place that we never would have considered him being able to work. And that's Hannah's own experience, right? She was downtrodden. She was barren. She was abused and left behind. And yet her life has been turned upside down. But of course, Hannah is speaking for more than just herself. She has experienced this kind of reversal personally, but also Israel is going to experience this kind of reversal. What she has personally experienced will soon be true of Israel corporately because God is going to raise up a king in David who will finally, it seems like, fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham so many years ago. What else does God do? Verse 10, he judges the world. The judgment of God can be very scary if you're doing something that God doesn't approve of. But for Hannah, judgment isn't something scary. It's something that she celebrates, not because she's perfect, but because when you are oppressed, when you are ground down, when you look for rescue and deliverance, what you're praying for is judgment. You're praying for God to come to your rescue, to relieve you from your suffering. When does all of this happen? When does God do all of these things? We've seen how Hannah talks about God, who God is. We've seen what God does, but when does God do it? Well, it's interesting, first, if you turn back to verse one of chapter two, at the end of verse one, Hannah says, "'My mouth derides my enemies "'because I rejoice in your salvation.'" In a sense, Hannah has already received the salvation that she prayed for. Remember last week, I told you that Hannah's barrenness was not just a personal problem to her, but she was an object lesson for Israel, that the curse that God had threatened on Israel, if they were to ever break his covenant, one of those curses was barrenness. And so when she cries out for a child, it isn't just for her to have the the joy of a little one in her arms. She's crying out that her curse, that the sin that she bears would be lifted from her. And now with the birth of Samuel, that's happened. She's no longer under that curse. And Israel itself is about to enter into its period of, of probably its greatest blessings But, Hannah also knows that everything that God has promised has not yet come to fruition. So even though she is enjoying, in some sense, part of that salvation, she knows that there is more to come. So in verse 10, she says this, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. Well, here's the problem. There's no king in Israel. Who's Hannah talking about? And and many of you know that that English word, anointed, that's the word Messiah or the word Christ. Who is Hannah talking about? How can she be praying for this? How does she know about this hannah speaks these words before there's ever even a hint of a king in israel well before her son samuel will anoint king david well before anyone could foresee that the promised seed of the woman from genesis chapter 3 would be jesus david's greater son but hannah knows that having experienced some part of salvation she has to wait she looks ahead into the future and she doesn't know how long it will take I think God has inspired her prophetically to write those words maybe she didn't completely comprehend what she is saying even in her own prayer but she helps us to see that there is going to be a sense in which we already enjoy what God has given us while we must wait for what is not yet true The way that we talk about this is just those words, the already and the not yet. Hannah, like you and I, live between the times. We've already been rescued. We've already been justified. We've already seen God at work. And yet there are things that we cry out to God with, with tears in our eyes or with frustration on our face even saying when will this come true we need to learn from hannah that sometimes the timetable of god doesn't match our timetable and that will change the way that you pray let me just pause here and ask you do you pray like hannah prays are you training your mind to think theologically theologically So that you can pause in your day and turn to God and not just kind of mumble some half-baked ideas, but actually have your thoughts formed by what Scripture tells you, who God is, what God does, when God acts. We recently helped Allie, our daughter, get her driver's license. And as we were going through this process, she's a great driver. Um, As we were going through this process, I was shocked at how much you have to know in order to get a driver's license. Like not only kind of all the booklet and stuff that you have to study, but then the tests that you have to do and all of the driving around town. And it made me realize how much now I take for granted what I know. I've trained, and you've trained, if you're a driver, you've trained your mind to not have to sit and, you know, kind of sift through 16 different ideas when you see a sign. You don't have to think, oh, no, no, what does that sign mean? No, you've trained your mind to understand what it means. You've trained your mind how to move from, from one lane to another. Maybe more people need to train their minds in that way. This is stuff now that you just take for granted, right? Are you training yourself to think theologically about the world? Are you training yourself to think about your life in the kind of categories that Hannah uses? Do you know who God is? Do you know what God does? are you able to live in the tension of when God does it? I think for a lot of us, that's where we struggle. Hannah's sense of what God has already done and God's still to work, that's what we struggle with. We think, well, man, if God's not doing it right now, then I don't know if I can trust Him. If God's not at work doing the things that right now? How can I be confident that he's actually going to hear me? Friends, a properly trained theological mind will look forward into the future, just like Hannah's prayer does. And it will look for ways that God will fulfill his promises, even if he hasn't yet done it. It will know that the final fulfillment of God's promises may even stretch beyond our lifetime, but it will have confidence that that is as sure, it is as certain that God will be faithful to do that, because he was faithful to me in history too. The first lesson I think we learn from Hannah's prayer is how to pray and think theologically. Theologically. The second lesson that Hannah teaches us is that the giver of the gift is greater than the gift itself. We touched on this briefly last week, but I want you to notice we start in chapter one with the birth of Samuel, we get to chapter two, Hannah's prayer. We've read 10 verses of chapter two of Hannah's prayer of thanks. Did you notice what's missing? Samuel isn't in it. Think about this. If you pray for something, how do you respond in gratitude? Oh, Lord, I need a new job. Ha! Praise God, I've got a new job. Thank you, Jesus, for the new job. I long to be loved by someone. Ha, look at this cool guy this wonderful woman I'm so happy thank you Jesus for this relationship I need healing thank you Jesus for the health that you've given me Prana, Hannah prays I need a son and she doesn't mention him she doesn't say a word about him you and I we would say look at him Look at him, his laugh and his smile and how he smells good and every little thing that I love about him. Thank you, Jesus, for this son. But there's no mention of Samuel at all. The focus is purely on God. What is Hannah teaching us? She is teaching us to remember that God is the source of all good things and even the answer to her prayer she will hold loosely in her hands. Not because it's not a moment of great joy, but because she knows that the God who answers prayer is greater than the gift he gives. You often hear me and Danny and John talk about idolatry in in our sermons and Idolatry isn't just the little carved image that we, you know, put in a little nook in our house. Idolatry is making anything bigger than God in our lives. I think one of the things that we forget is that our idols aren't usually the shameful sins that we won't talk about. Our idols are often the things that we have prayed the most for. Our idols are often the things that we have asked God the longest for, the things that we think we are so desperately needy for, the answer to our deepest desires. And then when God comes through and he actually answers our prayer, we take that answer and we hold it in a death grip. And even God himself becomes a danger to us, a threat. Now that I have it, I can't let it go. Don't you dare ask me to give it up. Hannah teaches us that the gifts of God should be offered back to God as gifts to him. This last spring... Allie and I did some trip, uh, a trip together. and We went to a few art galleries and museums, and often when you go into an art gallery or a museum, you'll see people sitting in front of the great masterpieces with their own sketchbook, with their own paints. And I can remember the first time I ever saw that, I was totally perplexed by it. I was like, you know, I know it looks like you could do it, but there's really only one. <laughs> There's really only one Jackson Pollock out there, okay? You're never going to be another Titian. You're never going to be another Rembrandt. What are you doing? Well, they're not copying the paintings to be like that painter, are they? No, they're they're learning from the master so that their own artistic expression is enlivened. Folks, in the same way, we need to learn from the prayers of the Bible. If you look at your life and you go, man, Eric, I don't pray like Hannah prays, then use her prayer to help form your own. Use the Lord's Prayer to help form your prayers. Not only do we need to do that, but it actually happens in the Bible. There's a prayer later on in the New Testament that I think is modeled on Hannah's prayer. And that's Mary's Magnificat. We're gonna sing it in a moment. But when Mary is told that she is going to be the mother of the king, she lifts her heart in prayer and praise, and scholars have identified many similarities between Hannah's prayer and Mary's prayer. But what's really fascinating, of course, is not just all the similarities, but the point at which they merge. Hannah prayed for the Lord's king, for the anointed one, and Mary Saying of that same king, that same anointed one whom the Holy Spirit had conceived in her womb. Friends, I think we can learn from Hannah's prayer. We can learn from Mary's prayer. You see, like Hannah, we too were hopeless. We were in distress. Our sin, our rebellion, we were under God's curse. Totally incapable of saving ourselves, God had to reach down and rescue us. And he did through Jesus, Mary's son, the anointed king that Hannah prays about, the one who dies on a cross taking on God's wrath for our sin, the one who rose from the dead so that we might inherit an imperishable kingdom I don't know if you've looked around lately, but that kingdom does not yet look glorious. We don't yet see everything that Hannah prayed about. The proud are still exalted. The humble are still oppressed. The adversaries of the Lord haven't yet been broken to pieces. The wicked aren't yet cut off in darkness, but that day is coming. Jesus has already been crucified for our sins. He has already been raised for our justification. So we know that when He comes again and the kingdoms of men come to an end, the world will be filled with righteousness, peace, and joy. Until that day, Until that day, we learn from Hannah. We learn from Mary. We learn to rejoice in God's great work of sending His King, His anointed one for our sakes. And every answered prayer, no matter how small it might be, every answered prayer we receive is a gift. It's an expression of God's faithfulness to you. It's an expression of God's goodness to you. It's a small reminder of his promise to be faithful to you even until the very end. When he will raise us from the dust of death. And in the words of Hannah, sit us with princes at his table. Let's pray. Father, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray with the kind of knowledge that Hannah prays, with with which Hannah prays. Teach us to do that, not so that our prayers sound flowery, but Lord, when we suffer, when we struggle, when the answers can't be found out there, turn our hearts to the one who has the answers. And Father, even if the answer is not yet, Allow us to turn with joy, to give back to you the gifts that you have given to us, and to look with longing, sometimes even tears in our eyes, for the final fulfillment of all of the promises you have made to us in Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.